You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. I went to the church where men were lying on the pews and on the floors. I knelt by the first one inside the door and said, What can I do for you? He replied, Nothing. I am going to die. To be thus met by the first one addressed was more than my nerves could stand, and I went hastily out, sat down on the church steps, and cried. In a little while, I re-entered the church hospital and spoke again to the dying man. He was Sergeant Alexander Stewart of the 149th Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment. He spoke of his home, his aged father and mother, of his wife, and of his younger and only brother, who had been severely wounded and was then at home, and asked me to take their addresses and send them his dying message. He lingered until Monday, July 6th. He had been sinking gradually all evening. About nine, he had a spell of coughing until ten o'clock. He suffered dreadfully. I held him in my arms until nearly eleven, when his head sank on the pillow and he died with only a slight struggle. Sally Myers, resident of Gettysburg. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 333 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. We just wanted to take a moment here to say how very impressed we were when we came across that quote by Sally Myers. She was 21 years old at the time of the battle and worked as an assistant to the principal of the Gettysburg Public Schools. We wanted to say that we think that when she went back into the church to help the wounded, after having a cry on the steps there, it was just as brave as any act of courage performed on the battlefield. In fact, if you think about it, the men who were fighting in the two armies were simply doing their duty. But Sally Myers was a civilian. She was under no obligation to go into that church and help the wounded. Yet she did. And she was far from alone in what she did. There were many women, residents of Gettysburg, who pitched in to help the wounded soldiers who filled the area's churches, homes, and barns. They're definitely some of the unsung heroes of the Battle of Gettysburg. (music) 
As you guys will recall, by the end of the last episode, the Federal 11th Corps was in full retreat from the line they had attempted to hold north of Gettysburg, and the men were racing their way south through the streets of the town, with Jubal Early's Confederates in hot pursuit close behind them. Meanwhile, at the same time, other Union soldiers were also pouring into town from the west because the Federal First Corps line had finally collapsed. After the war, there would be a heated debate among the veterans of the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps concerning whose line broke first that afternoon. And for them, this was a serious matter, since, as a matter of honor, neither the men of the 1st Corps nor the men of the 11th Corps wanted to be tagged as being the first to retreat. While that was a heated and sometimes bitter debate among the veterans of the two corps, Most historians have come to the conclusion that you can't really say which of the two lines broke first, since the events in question were happening more or less simultaneously. And so what we wanted you guys to realize is that while we're covering the proceedings of that afternoon in a series of episodes here on the podcast, in reality, all of this was happening at more or less the same time there on the afternoon of July 1st. So while the 11th Corps line north of Gettysburg was collapsing rather dramatically, the 1st Corps line west of town was in the process of unraveling no less dramatically. So again, here on the podcast, as you'll see, what we're doing is covering these events in several episodes by going counterclockwise around the federal line from north to west. But just keep in mind that all of this with the 11th Corps and the 1st Corps is happening more or less simultaneously. Okay, so with that disclaimer out of the way... By 3 o'clock on the afternoon of July 1st, Confederate forces, like an irresistible tide, were pressing the entirety of the Union line north and west of Gettysburg, because not only were Early's rebels descending like an avalanche on the right of the Federal line, but Heath's and Rhodes' Confederates were also advancing from the north and the west. As we've talked about before, by the time Robert E. Lee arrived on the battlefield on July 1st, And by the time he began to get a clear picture of what was happening, he could sense that events were beginning to spiral out of his control. Heath's troops had been given a bloody nose in the morning's fighting. Rhodes' men were heavily engaged coming down off Oak Hill. And Lee knew that Early's division would soon be arriving farther to the north, to the left of Rhodes'. Lee realized there could now be no turning back from a battle of some sort at Gettysburg. Although Lee was still in the dark about how much of the Union Army he might face that day, for now there were reports of only two Federal Corps present on the battlefield, and Lee realized fate was offering him an opportunity to smash those enemy formations. And so, as we've talked about before, Lee decided to seize that opportunity. When Harry Heath approached Lee a second time, Asking for permission to advance, Lee told him, Wait a while, and I will send you word when to go in. 
Like Heath, we will also wait until the next show to talk about his advance and his renewed attack on the left end of the First Corps line on McPherson's Ridge, south of the Chambersburg Pike. But in this episode, what we're going to do is look at what happened to the northern part of the First Corps line, that is, north of the Chambersburg Pike, between the Pike and the Mumisburg Road. Remember, we're looking at these events on the afternoon of July 1st in turn, going counterclockwise around the battlefield. So after talking about the 11th Corps position last week, that means our attention will now turn to the northern portion of the 1st Corps line. This is where the Confederates of O'Neill's and Iverson's brigades, coming down off of Oak Hill, had been repulsed with heavy losses, and where Junius Daniel's brigade had also been fed into the fight against the stubborn Federals. Daniel, so far, hasn't had any luck either in cracking the 1st Corps line here. However, Junius Daniel will display a remarkable tenacity on July 1st, and he isn't giving up, but is game to have another go at the Yankees. We'll return to Daniel in a bit, but as y'all recall, north of the Chambersburg Pike, just below the Mumisburg Road, it had been the Federals of Baxter's Brigade, whose defensive stand at the north end of the First Corps line, had turned back O'Neill's and Iverson's assaults. However, it was obvious Baxter's men would need help to withstand any additional Confederate pressure. So First Corps Commander Abner Doubleday, who still had one brigade of John Robinson's division back at the Lutheran Seminary as a reserve, now decided to put it to work, sending it up to the north end of the First Corps line. This was Gabriel Paul's brigade, made up of a mixed bag of regiments from Maine, Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania. They had been busy erecting a hastily assembled set of breastworks by the seminary building that was meant to be used as a last-ditch defensive position there on Seminary Ridge. But when the call came, they dropped that work and hustled northward. They relieved Baxter's regiments at the north end of the First Corps line, and Baxter's troops moved down the line to create a stronger link with the men of Cutler's Brigade, who were still guarding Sheed's Woods and the line north of the railroad cut. So now, north of the Chambersburg Pike, making up the north end of the First Corps line, you have Cutler's Brigade on the left, Baxter's men in the center, and nearest to the Mumisburg Road and Oak Hill are Paul's troops on the right. Paul's men drove off some Confederate skirmishers from their front who had crept down from Oak Hill, but the Federals were hardly in position before it was clear that a considerable rebel force was massing on the hill for another assault on the north end of the First Corps line. This was Dodson Ramser's full, fresh brigade of North Carolinians, joined by the rallied remnants of Iverson's and O'Neill's brigades. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Gabriel Paul's brigade at the north end of the First Corps line was in a difficult spot. Like Baxter's brigade before them, Paul's five regiments here were also forced to assume a V or L-shaped position facing both north and west. In that map in your mind's eye, picture Paul's brigade as the angular link between the First Corps line and the 11th Corps line. Since the 1st Corps line ran north and south and faced west, and since the 11th Corps line ran east and west and faced north, Paul's brigade, as the link or hinge between the two corps, had to man that L-shaped position, facing both north and west. Two of Paul's regiments, the 104th New York and 13th Massachusetts, held the right of the position, facing north, toward the Mumasburg Road. Then, holding the westward-facing portion of the position, looking out to the open fields below Oak Hill, were Paul's other three regiments, the 94th New York, 16th Maine, and 107th Pennsylvania, along with the 97th New York from Baxter's Brigade. On the Confederate side here, Robert Rhodes sent in the last remaining uncommitted formation from his division, and that was Dodson Ramser's brigade of four North Carolina regiments. Rhodes gave Ramser orders to send two of his regiments to support O'Neill and to send the other two to support Iverson. Ramser divided his brigade into two separate elements as ordered, but even though he was initially intended to play a supporting role, that changed when Ramser discovered that O'Neill's and Iverson's brigades had already been roughly handled by the Federals and were in bad shape. To Dodson Ramser's credit, he then took a more active leadership role, rounded up the scattered men from Iverson's and O'Neill's commands, added them to his own force, 
and organized an attack on the northern end of the Federal First Corps line. Ramser, who had an uncommon ability to handle troops tactically in battle, managed to coordinate those different units and launch them toward a single common objective, clearing the northern end of the Ridge of Yankees. His 14th and 30th North Carolina, with the active cooperation of the 3rd Alabama that had fought for a time with Iverson, advanced off Oak Hill along the west of the ridge line toward the hinge of Gabriel Paul's L-shaped line. At roughly the same time, Ramser's 2nd and 4th North Carolina and some of O'Neill's men attacked over the eastern slopes of Oak Hill and the McLean farm fields to hit the right of Paul's line, where the 104th New York and 13th Massachusetts faced north toward the Mumisburg Road. An officer in the 13th Massachusetts later reported that a wide interval separated the 13th from the 104th New York, so that, quote, we were not able to properly support each other. Nevertheless, the Federals here put up a fight. Captain Park of the 12th Alabama, one of O'Neill's men who stayed in the fight, wrote in his diary of how, quote, Balls were flying thick and fast around us and whizzing past and often striking someone near. Captain Hewlett and Lieutenant Bridges and Private Lester were wounded near me. While urging my men to fire and keep cool, I received a ball in my hip. It was a wonder, a miracle, I was not afterwards shot half a dozen times, but a merciful providence preserved me. In holding the right end of Paul's brigade line, the 13th Massachusetts and 104th New York suffered terrible losses. As Private Charles Barber of the 104th wrote to his wife a few days later, quote, We went in with 235 men and have less than 50 left. Not a single captain and just one lieutenant is left in our whole regiment. Company A went in with 30 men, and now we have only seven here, and not a single officer of any kind except one sergeant. Gabriel Paul, while trying to inspire his two regiments here against the mounting Confederate pressure, was riding in the rear of the 104th New York when a Confederate bullet struck him in the right temple and passed out his left eye socket, destroying both eyes. It was a horrific wound, and most northern newspaper accounts in the week after the battle simply listed Paul's name as among those killed in action. However, Paul, a West Pointer and tough old soldier, survived the wound and, although blind, of course, actually remained on active duty, doing administrative tasks until he retired from active service in February 1865. Gabriel Paul lived to die in Washington, D.C. in 1886, and he is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. In very quick succession, the next two officers who assumed command of Gabriel Paul's brigade were also wounded. Paul's Federals were putting up a stubborn fight, but the Confederate pressure from Ramser's assault, coming in from two sides, that is, from north and west, was becoming too much for them to bear. 
Just to the south of Paul's beleaguered salient, elements of Junius Daniel's Confederate Brigade, we said we'd get back to him, but now Daniel's North Carolinians, aided by some of Iverson's rallied troops, kept up a steady pressure on Cutler's and Baxter's Federals in Sheed's Woods, to the north of the railroad cut. As the minutes ticked by, the fire from the trees continually dwindled as the Yankees there simply began to run out of bullets. With the first corps line north of the Chambersburg Pike starting to come unglued under the relentless Confederate pressure, Federal Division Commander John Robinson realized that if he was going to save his command, it was time to go. And so Robinson started to withdraw the men of Baxter's and Paul's brigades southward along the line of the ridge toward the railroad cut, hoping to turn eastward at the cut and use it as a route into town and beyond. To buy the necessary time for the rest of the division to get off the field, Robinson decided to sacrifice one regiment which would hold its ground and delay the surging Confederates for as long as possible. Robinson selected the 16th Maine. The 16th's colonel, Charles Tilden, protested. He had not quite 200 men still on their feet, he said, and so Robinson might as well, quote, set a corporal's guard to stop the rebel army. Robinson was noticeably irritated by Tilden's protest, and rising in his stirrups, ordered Tilden to move the 16th up to the stone wall bordering the Mumisburg Road and, quote, hold it as long as there is a single man left. Tilden knew he had no choice, so he replied, All right, General, we'll do the best we can. But as one of the regiment's officers later said of that moment, quote, Every man knew that the movement meant death or capture. Tilden led his men over to the stone wall and there planted the 16th's two flags as the other regiments of the brigade, as well as Baxter's men, hustled away down the ridge and then off toward town. Also pulling back were the men of Cutler's brigade from Wadsworth's division. Ramser's attacking Confederates closed in on the men from Maine, attacking from the north and northwest. Tilden waited until he saw nothing but rebels to the left and right, as well as in front. Then, deciding the 16th had done its duty, he ordered a retreat. They struggled to fall back fighting, but the Confederate pressure was unrelenting. When the survivors reached the railroad cut, they halted. It seemed as if the rebels were coming at them from every side. The 16th's adjutant declared that, quote, they swarmed down upon us, they engulfed us. For most of the soldiers from Maine, their options were surrender or death. An Alabaman pointed his musket at Colonel Tilden and shouted, throw down that sword or I will blow your brains out. Tilden responded by sticking the point of his sword into the ground and attempting to break the blade. His men were equally reluctant to surrender the regiment's colors. And so, with Tilden's permission, the color bearers, Sergeant Wilbur Mower and Corporal Sampson Thomas, tore the national and state flags from their staffs and ripped them into pieces too small to become official trophies for the enemy, but large enough to provide treasured keepsakes for the men who had fought beneath them. 
After the pieces of the flags were passed out, one lieutenant confessed that, quote, every man commenced to look after himself without further orders. Of the 275 men who entered battle that day with the 16th Maine, only 39 escaped the fierce combat on McPherson's Ridge and made it back to Cemetery Hill. I should say it was after four o'clock when we saw a brigade of rebels coming against us and we looked around for support and saw none and were falling back for a more favorable position when an aide came from General Robinson with an order for us to advance and hold the ridge as far north as possible. A few moments later the general himself rode up to Colonel Tilden and repeated the order. The colonel protested that our regiment, without support, couldn't hold the ridge. We numbered fewer than 200, all told. As well set a corporal's guard to stop the rebel army, but the general insisted, hold it at any cost. You know what that means, said Colonel Tilden, turning to us, and in the same breath he gave the commands that sent us hurrying back towards the Mumisburg Road again. The stone wall came along on the left and bent sharply ahead of us to face the road. We made a dash for the corner and planted our colors in the angle. We got there just as a flag and a line of battle showed up across the way. We heard distinctly the commands of a rebel officer directing his men to fire, and a volley crashed, and we saw some of our men fall. Our line blazed away in reply, and the rebel flag went down, and the officer pitched headlong in the stubble. In the field across the road were dead men and scattered equipment, wreckage of a rebel repulse earlier in the day, and now there were more. But the attacking line came on, and following behind it was another, and we knew that our little regiment could not withstand the onset. With anxious hope we looked again to the rear for support, and saw that the other regiments of our brigade, our division, were falling back rapidly towards the town. The rebels were sweeping in through the fields beyond our right. The ridge could be held no longer. We were sacrificed to steady the retreat. How much time was then passing I can't say. It was only a matter of minutes before the gray lines threatened to crush us. They came on, firing from behind the wall, from fences, from the road. They forced us, fighting, back along the ridge, and Captain Lowell fell, and some of our men. We got to the railroad cut, which offered a means of defense against the rebels following us, but just then we saw gray troops making in from the west, and they saw us. We were caught between two fires. It was the end. For a few last moments our little regiment defended angrily its hopeless challenge, but it was useless to fight longer. We looked at our colors, and our faces burned. We must not surrender those symbols of our pride and our faith. Our color bearers appealed to the colonel, and with his consent they tore the flags from the staves and ripped the silk into shreds, and our officers and men that were near each took a shred. I have one with a golden star. Though the rebel lines were fast closing in, 
there was yet a chance for some of us to escape, and nothing now forbade our risking that desperate hazard. We that took the chance bolted across the Cashtown Pike and made our way, in a fever of anxiety, to a hill south of the town. Captain Abner Small, 16th Maine Infantry, Paul's Brigade. That means it's time to start to wrap up this show. Before we go, we wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 111 over on Patreon. It's the second part of the true story of Longstreet spy Harrison, who features so prominently in the novel The Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg. We hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy those episodes about the spy Harrison. Speaking of which, we want to say thanks to the newest members, Jim, Matthew, Joshua W., and Philip. And Lance, John, Kyle, and Joshua H. Also a big thank you to Andrew A. and William B. for their donations. If you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org, you can find information about supporting the show through a Patreon membership. And you'll also find the Donate button. And you'll find a link to our Tee Public storefront where you can purchase a podcast t-shirt or two. Thanks to everyone for their support. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the fighting on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.